Good morning to you. Uh, as per our typical pattern, we're going to open up God's Word together. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to meet me in Acts chapter 20. Uh, we'll give our attention this morning to verses 1 through 12. Once again, that's Acts 20, verses 1 through 12. For those of you who may be visiting with us, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I serve as the lead pastor here uh, at FAC. It's always a great blessing to be with you on Sunday morning, uh, and it would be a greater blessing to me if, uh, if we haven't met uh, that we would have met before the morning is over. Uh, I'm always eager to meet new people, and, and so please don't hesitate to make yourself known after service before you leave. Uh, that, that would be a great help to me if you made yourself known. Um, just two quick reminders. Um, for those of you who are official members here at FAC, uh, there are nominating ballots available at the Hub. This is the time of year where we accept nominations uh, for our elder board and other various offices. Uh, and so, uh, please, we would encourage you to pick up a ballot and nominate someone. Uh, as you feel led, uh, nominations are accepted uh, until June 26th, and you do have to communicate with whoever you're nominating. You've got to ask them if it's okay to nominate them. And so give yourself uh, some time with that, as we've got a few weeks left here. Um, for that. Also a quick reminder that it is a communion Sunday. We will participate in communion after our time in God's word. And so if you have yet to grab one of those cups, the communion cups out in the hallway, I'd encourage you to uh, go and get those before our time is through here. Um, let's go ahead now and read from God's word uh, together. Once again, I'll read from Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. Please uh, follow along as I read. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus, and Trophimus. These went on ahead, and we were, wait and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you for your tender care of us, and the new mercies that accompanied us this very morning. I pray now that as we engage with your living word, that your spirit would bring knowledge and understanding and transform us through your word preached. We ask for your help in our time together. I, I pray that you would supernaturally touch the words spoken in these next minutes. Uh, would you call to mind the things necessary for us to know you and your nature? And would you shield anything in our minds that is not of you? 
and of your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So it's that time of year again when graduating seniors are finally finishing up their uh, high school careers, many last week, this week, and um, this always proves to be quite a bittersweet moment uh, for families because parents are so proud of, of their children, but they know of the inevitability of having to say goodbye uh, as many children head off and away for the first time in their young life. And, and so it's a joyous moment, but it's also a sad moment. It's a special moment. It's a tender moment. Um, This is actually kind of the picture that we get here in Acts 20 and verse 1. This moment is depicted. The the Apostle Paul uh, has been doing ministry now in Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, for several years. And now according, back in in verse 21 of Acts 19, where the Spirit's leading, it's time for Paul to pack up and move on. Um, Yet before he leaves, he wants the chance to say goodbye to his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. He wants the opportunity to share in just this tender, special moment of of, of departing. Um, And we see something in Paul here. As one reads through the book of Acts, the portrayal that many have of Paul in their mind is that of just this bold, confident, go-get-em type leader. Paul is this ambitious commander in the captain's chair, willing to do anything and sacrifice much, for the advancement of the gospel, to point people to Jesus. Or if one reads through his letters later on in the New Testament, the the portrayal that many have of Paul in their mind is that of a theological and literary genius. That Paul has an acumen which rivals some of the greatest thinkers of history. And one wouldn't be wrong to view Paul in either of those terms. However, there is another character quality of Paul that often flies under the radar that is often overlooked and that is his pastoral care for people. Paul had this profound love for people, especially young believers in the faith. Just as much as his passion to see unbelievers become committed followers of Jesus Christ was his passion to care for and encourage and build up and strengthen believers walking in the faith. Because let's face it, walking the Christian walk is a grueling path. It's one not to be taken lightly. It's a hard path, and and we can expect it to be such when Jesus himself says that one must pick up his cross, an instrument of death, and, and follow me. And we're quickly reminded in our passage how hard it is in verse 1 when it says after the uproar has, uh, had ceased. This is a callback in verse 1 to what we read the last time that we were in Acts a couple of weeks ago. The, the uproar is in reference to this riot that had formed in response to Paul's work in Ephesus. And, and Paul is painted as the bad guy and a good deal of the community rose up against him and the community even while they couldn't get their hands on Paul took some of his ministry partners and dragged them into the uh, into the city right and um, they were depicted as this bad guy this villain and to this day Christ followers are still depicted as the villain in, in the mainline cultural narrative 
once again, we're reminded by Jesus' words when he tells his disciples, I think it's John 14, that the world is going to hate you because they hated me first. It's a difficult path. And so there is a great need among the body of believers to spur each other on. And this is something that Paul did well, and it's something that we actually see come through in this passage. And so what I'd like to do is walk through the the story, retell the story just verse by verse, and then we're going to circle back around and uh, we'll illuminate the, uh, the, the, just the main theme of these verses. We'll drill home on that. And so um, starting in verse 1, as I've already mentioned, Paul determines it's time to leave Ephesus. He packs his bags. He um, summons the disciples in the city in order to say goodbye, in order to encourage them. Um, and, and then he travels on to Macedonia. And after he travels through Macedonia, he travels then down south to Greece, uh, and, if, and if you've been tracking with Paul's missionary journeys with us as we've been walking through Acts, you'll know that those were regions that Paul had already visited, Paul had already preached, and he most certainly already planted churches there on, on his second missionary journey. Uh, there's at least five cities that we know of for fact that Paul preached in Macedonia, to in Macedonia and in Greece. And so what, what is Paul doing? He, he's, he's returning to those places and revisiting those people with the purpose of encouraging them, according to verse 2. He's, he's stopping by. Fun side note, it's also during this time that Paul wrote the book of 2 Corinthians. When he's up in um, Macedonia, he writes the book of 2 Corinthians. He also, during this time, uh, writes the book of Romans. Uh, from Greece, uh, after he visited the churches of Macedonia, after he visited the churches in Greece, Paul planned to sail all the way across the Mediterranean Sea back to Syria, which was the region just north of uh, Jerusalem. But because of a plot against him by the Jews, he must change his plans. Now, we don't know the details of why or why not, but Paul feels the need to essentially backtrack. Instead of uh, taking a straight shot across the Mediterranean Sea, uh, he returns back through the exact same route that he just came uh, through, from Ephesus. Um, and then in verses 4 through 6, we're introduced to some of Paul's traveling companions. Uh, what's interesting about these names here is that all of them are from different cities. Right? It's not as if Paul has this entourage of men that all came from the same area or all came from the same background or all came from Paul's hometown. No, as Paul traveled and preached, he picked these guys up uh, along the way. In our time in 2 Corinthians, you know that during this time, Paul is actually taking up a collection. It's called the Jerusalem Collection. It was, a, it was a d- donations from the churches in that region to help uh, struggling Christians in Jerusalem. These men are probably representatives from the churches that were taking up this collection, and, and they were eager to join Paul in his ministry and his missionary work. And, and this detail here in Acts is included so as to show us just the scope and the diversity of Paul's work, and the scope and diversity of the people that the gospel reached. It's quite remarkable uh, indeed. Um, We read that these traveling companions go on ahead of Paul, and then they all eventually reconvene in Troas. And so just just to recap, Paul leaves Ephesus at the beginning of this passage. He travels through Macedonia. He travels south to Greece, and then he returns to Macedonia and sails from Macedonia to Asia, where he lands in Troas. All of those travels right there, just in the first six verses of uh, Acts 20, probably took about a year and a half to two years at least 
uh, of time for Paul. A lot happened in that time that Luke, the author of Acts, doesn't record. And then we come to Troas. Paul's only in Troas for a week, but something crazy happens, which is, which is probably why he records it here. Luke decides to record what happens here in Troas. Um, it, it's a Sunday evening, and there are a group of believers gathered, and Paul is trying to squeeze every single last minute of his time together with these other believers in Troas to the point that they're burning the midnight oil, uh, literally. Uh, Paul is talking with them into the late hours of the evening, and we're told that there was this young man named uh, Eutychus who was sitting in a windowsill on a third story, listening to Paul speak and dialogue with other believers, and he fell into a deep sleep. Uh, Now, I've seen a lot of people fall asleep in very strange places, Uh, but of all the places to doze off, I wouldn't recommend an open windowsill on the third story. Uh, Eutychus falls asleep, and he he falls out of the window, and he dies from the fall. The, the, The Corinthians weren't kidding when they accused Paul of being a boring preacher in 2 Corinthians. He's literally boring people to death. Uh, I know that I've put people to sleep preaching before, but to my knowledge, no one has ever died as a result. And so at least I've got that on Paul. Everybody in the balcony, um, you're in the danger zone, so just be careful. I I joke about it because Eutychus ends up being just fine, right? And and, and even Luke seems to record this in a humorous fashion. Paul goes down, sees that he's dead, brings him back to life. It talks about Paul stretching his body over him, brings him back to life. And then Paul just goes back upstairs nonchalantly as if nothing ever happened. They all get a case of the midnight munchies and they begin eating a meal in the middle of the night and they pull an all-nighter. They stay awake talking until the break of dawn, until sunrise. Who would have ever thought that Paul's ministry here looked a lot like my college years? (laughs) Except I don't think they had a Taco Bell back then. Um, Now, now there are many pastors and authors who take this strange story of Eutychus, and they try to make it about the danger of falling asleep in church. That's that's what they say. Or or even about the dangers of being a boring preacher. And and while one should try hard not to fall asleep in church... And while one should try hard not to be a boring preacher, uh, that is not why Luke included the story here in the text. The theme that Luke was going for was not that. If not that, then what is Luke trying to communicate here? Um, He actually helps us out here as he incorporates in the text what we call an inclusio. All right, an inclusio, an inclusion, an an inclusio. It's a literary device. It's a literary device that ancient writers used to help readers interpret and understand the theme or the point of the text. More specifically, an inclusio occurs when an author uses similar language at the beginning and the end of a section of text. He creates bookends, so to speak. He creates a literary sandwich. Now, a literal sandwich is typically known and identified by the substance of what's inside the sandwich, right? If I were to give you a sandwich and tell you that this is a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you would know exactly what to expect when you take a bite. With an inclusio, 
In ancient texts, we, we are given a literary sandwich, and we know exactly what to expect and look for in the content. In the case of our passage, the bookends, the inclusio, are, is formed by the use of one Greek word, and that word is parakaleo. Parakaleo, it means to encourage, to console, to comfort, to strengthen, to spur on. In the first two verses of the passage, we're told that Paul encouraged the disciples in Ephesus as he left, and that he encouraged the disciples throughout the regions of Macedonia. And then at the end of the passage, after Eutychus is brought back to life in verse 12, we read that they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. That word comforted is actually the same word that we read as encouraged in verses 1 and 2, parakaleo. With that, we know that that encouragement, comfort, spurring on is a key theme of this passage. Luke here emphasizes Paul's efforts to encourage and strengthen followers of Christ. Paul considers it a mainstay of his ministry. And in this particular passage, we see this ministry of of encouragement really manifest itself in several different ways. Uh, We'll walk through them together. Most, Most prominently, we see that there is encouragement through Paul's very presence. Just his physical presence provides encouragement. That's why, uh, why through Paul's travels, he made it a point to always stop at the churches that were already established on his way. They may not have been the ultimate destination that he was going for, but he always made a pit stop because he knew that while his letters to the churches were uplifting, they didn't hold a candle to his physical presence. Anyone who travels for work knows that a phone call or a video call home to your loved ones pales in comparison to being there in the flesh. In our text, Paul summons the Ephesian believers in verse 1. Why? So that he could be in their presence and encourage them. In verse 2, he travels through the regions of Macedonia physically, to provide much encouragement. And even in verse 7, he is with the people in Troas, gathered together to encourage them. This is why the first ministry of every believer is just showing up, being present consistently. And I stand by my claim that I've made on several occasions that more ministry happens here on Sunday mornings in the hallways than does on the platform because of the presence of gathered believers. What I get excited about on Sunday mornings are the impromptu conversations with the people at the coffee station or the interactions in the parking lot or the random prayer that I see occur from one person over another after our time together. You have no idea the type of encouragement, the amount of encouragement that I have personally received because one of our senior saints has come over and given me a hug, a caring hug. The the reason singing 
is so rich and so great on Sunday morning has little to do with what's happening on the platform or the talent on the platform. Luke isn't as great as you think he is. The, the reason the singing is so rich and so great is because we're doing it together in each other's presence as a family. All of those are examples of why the first ministry of every believer is just showing up. Being present in the lives of other believers consistently. Because there's a beautiful mystery to, to the believers gathering together because you never know how the Holy Spirit will move and work through you on a given day. And that's a good thing. But one thing I can guarantee is that it won't happen if you're not here in the flesh. Just a few weeks ago, I sat down to have a meal with a married couple in our church. And uh, the woman, whose name is Lucy, shared with me about this special experience that she had on a Sunday morning almost 15 years ago. Uh, At the time, um, she was looking for a job praying and asking for the Lord to lead her to a job where she could be used, where she could do ministry. And on one particular Sunday morning, she was standing over by the hub, which is over there by the elevator, and an elderly woman had come off the elevator, and Lucy turned to the elderly woman and kindly said, Good morning. How are you? And and the woman explained to Lucy that she was actually struggling and she had to get down to room B106, which is all the way over here down the hallway. Uh, So Lucy offered her help. And she got her a wheelchair and took her all the way there. And as Lucy was helping this woman out of the wheelchair into uh, a chair over in this other room, she heard God's still small voice, clear as day. Tell her, this is what I want you to be. I want you to be a caregiver. She had never done caregiving before. This was new, but she pursued it, and she got a job in it immediately. And she's now been doing it for 15 years. And she told me that it's opened up countless ministry opportunities, and it's also been a great blessing to her as well as others. Under God's providence that morning, he used two women, not just one, but two women who chose to show up. We have no idea the vast inner workings of God, even in the midst of just the gathering of believers. Be present. Be engaged. Paul was present. Back in the text in verse 7, not only do we see Paul's presence, but we get a more specific picture of why Paul's presence is encouraging. We get a detailed look at how they're spending their time together. First, they're not just gathered together for the sake of gathering, but they're gathered together uh, to break bread, to share a meal with each other. Uh, Many people read that now and assume that this is the Lord's Supper, this is communion that they're participating in. It might have been, it might not have been, and that very well may be so. However, we must understand that even communion in that context looked much different than it does in ours. The, the method of communion then was, was coming together for an entire meal. And so regardless if this was an official communion gathering or not, there's something to be said here about table fellowship. One of the best ways to enjoy someone's presence and be encouraged by someone else's presence is to have a meal with them, to, to get a gra- grab a bite to eat. Because in that moment, you have their undivided attention, and in that moment, they have your undivided attention. This was natural, especially for the first century church. One commentator wrote that the reality of Christian fellowship 
was expressed from the earliest times as Jesus intended it in the ordinary activity of eating together. Of eating together. Even if what they're doing here is not communion and just an ordinary meal, the image of the Lord's Supper is not lost on us. The fact that Jesus would choose a meal as the very avenue to introduce the concept of communion. The fact that he would choose a meal as the way by which we remember his death and resurrection and by, by which we remember our position in the family of God, that I have a place at the table with the rest of the family of God, that is significant. Table fellowship plays an important role in the strengthening of believers. It was significant for the community in Troas, and it, was character, and it characterized their community life together. They were living life together. And so let me encourage you on Sunday, seek out somebody. Invite them for a meal. Another characteristic that we see in Paul's presence is that he is encouraging them through God's word. It's not just table fellowship, but they're talking about God's word. They are dialoguing about God's word. Just as table fellowship brings fullness and satisfaction to our bodies, God's word is food that brings fullness and satisfaction to our souls. It's life-giving in the most literal sense of the phrase. One commentator explains that one of the highest priorities for Paul was that believers would be equipped theologically and spiritually in order to persevere after he's gone. Paul knows that he can't stay with them. Paul knows that he shouldn't stay with them. Paul knows that he doesn't have to stay with them. But how are they going to persevere if not with Paul? Paul knows that the way one perseveres in a cruel, harsh world bent on destroying believers is that they would be rooted in the foundation of God's spoken word. That they wouldn't be rooted in Paul as a person, but they would be rooted in God's word. They didn't need Paul to persevere. They needed the word of God. Because the word of God functions as a ministry of reminder. Remember how God did this and remember how God did that. How do we face an uncertain future, Paul? By remembering that God has done this before. And so we remind each other of the reminders in Scripture of God's character and nature, even as things look bleak, because they've looked bleak in the past. But God was present, and he is still present today. So as we dialogue with one another, both formally and informally, let the truths of God's word saturate our conversations. As we bear each other's burdens, as we give words of advice and wisdom, let them be the truth of God's word. Let God's word be evident. It's another characteristic, a third characteristic that we see in this passage is extended time with each other. This is Paul's last day with them. So once again, he's squeezing every last minute that he can to be with them. He's, he's talking with them up until midnight. And then even after the unfortunate incident with Eutychus, they stayed up all night until the break of dawn. And no one seems to be watching the clock or checking what time it is, uh, asking Paul, it's time to wrap it up, right? Uh, th- th- this is something that friends do, right? And it has impact, just being around other people for a prolonged period of time. When I was a youth pastor, we used to take this week-long evangelism training trip, mostly to Chicago, and I would always make a deal with the students that if they were well-behaved uh, for the week and if, if they went to bed when I told them to go to bed for the, for the week, 
that on the last evening they could stay up as late as they wanted, as long as I was still awake to supervise. And every year we would stay up all night until the break of dawn. And it would make a, for a very quiet bus ride on the way home. Um, it was the method of my madness. Uh, people thought I was crazy, but the primary reason I did this was not for a quiet bus ride, uh, was, but because that extended time together was just as life-giving to me as it was for them. To, to this day, when I'm with former students, we will share fond stories of the things that happened um, in those moments. I mentioned earlier how important it is to be here and be present on Sunday mornings, and while that is true, if we're honest with each other, Sunday mornings aren't enough to build real authentic relationships. The most encouraging and caring body of believers are the ones who spend extended time with one another, who make it a point to be present not just on Sundays, but in the lives of other believers in the community uh, Monday through Saturday as well. And the final characteristic we see as we come to the end um, is, is the final display of encouragement and comfort we see is the most obvious Paul displays encouragement through care, through care. As, as poor young Eutychus plunges to his death, who is the first one there but Paul? Seemingly without hesitation, he goes down there and he takes him up in his arms and he brings the boy back to life by God's power. In verse 12, they, they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. They were encouraged. What could have been a sad evening of death became a joyous evening of life. In the way that Luke records uh, records this, it has this uncanny resemblance to a story in the Old Testament, in First Kings with the prophet Elijah. Uh, you can't help but assume, reading the stories side by side, that Luke has this in mind when he records this event. And, and while Luke is silent about the significance of this miracle, what it was there for, First Kings 17 actually helps us out a little. In, in that story, Elijah, similar to Paul, stretches out his body across the, uh, the stretches himself across the body of a young man who had died, and he cries out to God, and, and God listens, and the life of the child came into him again. And then, after seeing the boy alive, the mother of this boy turns to Elijah, and here's the kicker: she says, "Now I know. Now I know that you are a man of God." and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. Anytime anyone is raised to life in Scripture, including Eutychus here in Acts 20, it's to demonstrate God's power over death, and that the message of the gospel is true. And what is the message of the gospel? That Jesus was dead, and now he's alive. You see, Luke includes this story to show the great life-giving power of God. And could there be more encouragement and comfort and hope than not just life after death, but life from death? Truth be told, Paul's entire ministry of encouragement is, is but a mimicry, a, an imitation of what God has already done for us. Does God not encourage us by his very presence? Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who came to dwell among us? Emmanuel, God with us? And even after Jesus departed and ascended into heaven, did God not send us the presence of his spirit? Has God not distributed his life-giving word to us? Do we not have everything we need 
within the pages of this book to be built up and strengthened so that we may persevere to the end? Has God left us to wonder who he is and what he would will for our lives? No. And finally, has God not proven to us that he has authority over our greatest enemy, our final enemy, death itself? Does not our ultimate encouragement and comfort lie in the fact that Jesus Christ was dead and now he is alive? And that Romans 8, that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, is present in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That is the ultimate sustaining factor in our walk. That no matter what I encounter, even in death itself, there is life by the power of God. So when we gather together, we must understand the significance of gathering in each other's presence because we are worshiping together a life-giving God. What more encouragement do we need? I have no idea how one copes with the frailty of life apart from Christ. Because as we sang together, he is our sure and steady anchor. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for the fact that you are mindful of us. And I praise your name for that, Lord. And I pray that uh, this morning we would praise your name together. Lord, I, I pray that as we gather on Sunday mornings that this would not be um, regarded as a burdensome duty, uh, but, but rather uh, a, a sacred blessing and a privilege to be able to walk arm in arm with each other. We praise you, Lord, for your presence here with us by your spirit. And we praise you for the sacrifice of Christ, which we now celebrate and remember together in communion. And it's in your holy name I pray. Amen.